Hey, friends. If you've listened to the show before, if you, you know us, you know that we are huge fans of our, our pal, Dr. Betsy Little Von Fossen. She is a psychology professor and somebody who's really helped us to understand some of these important uh, psychological principles and theories that can help us unpack why the heck it is that, um, that there were more than 100 Southern Baptist youth pastors who had uh, committed sexual crimes in the capacity of, you know, being uh, youth workers, church workers. And even in the, in the face of that, a lot of people wanted to step to their defense or explain away their action. Now, lest we think that's just a Baptist problem, we're going to talk with, uh, with Betsy about the ways in which we all kind of do this, no matter what your group is. This doesn't make it okay, but we're going to let her just kind of teach us, again, what is this, this way in which our brains kind of uh, misfire, I guess is the way I'd say it, um, in, in this idea of attribution, um, attribution theory, and the ways in which we tend to uh, explain away our friends' behaviors as circumstantial, but look at somebody else and say, well, when they do something bad, it's because they're a bad person. And by understanding this, we're going to talk a little bit about the ways in which we might find emancipation and healing from a lot of the things that ail us as a culture. I think it's a really important show for you to, to, to listen through. And we are doing it on Zoom, so the audio is going to be a little different. But hey, if you've been around for the last few years, you know what Zoom sounds like. Get behind it, and you're going to hear some really cool stuff. Thanks for being with us. Here we go. For like a long time, Stacy and I were really interested in system justification theory um, as it relates to why is it that people uh, don't report abuse in churches? And um, that made a lot of sense to us because we were always looking at it from the perspective of um, like denominations and universities and like the, the, the system. And then in the recent news, the Southern Baptist Convention comes out and says there are more than 100 youth pastors who have like actually gotten in trouble for sexual uh, uh, assault and uh, that this was covered up and that, you know, they had it. But to me, the biggest issue or the thing that's the weirdest is that time and time again, uh, the families, even the families of the victims or at least the families of the churches will write letters of support as character witnesses for these perverts. Okay, how would I say this? <laughs> character witnesses for these unhealthy people, okay? Because that's going to take us into, like, as I said, these perverts. I'm, like, now kind of, like, thinking about the essence of these people, right? But um, what it what occurred to me, I wanted to, we wanted to ask you about, is taking it away from the system, but now talking about, like, our cognitive biases as it relates to the individual human, this youth pastor, not the system, this youth pastor, I'm going to look at him and his actions in a way that's biased. 
And I realized I don't know enough about this. I just only heard about it. Uh, this other idea, not system justification theory, but attribution theory. Mm-hmm. So what, what are we dealing with here? What, how can this help us maybe? Well, so when we talk about attribution, it's really putting kind of a cognitive explanation or a cognitive language to kind of a system of emotions, right? So the way that the brain works is that we fire off kind of hormonal emotion, chemical flood in the brain to an event or to some kind of thing. And then we try to connect what caused that. We're cause and effect kind of animals, we really need to understand cause and effect. And so we look around our environment to see what could be the logical or what have I learned from my past or how do I explain what's going on? So in a really basic kind of easy to understand way, um, when you think about the feelings of being in love or uh, first seeing someone, you get the butterflies and the tingles. But also, if you think about when you go to a scary movie or when you feel fear, you feel a clenching in the tummy, you get tingling in the fingers. Physiologically, there's not a huge difference between uh, sexual romantic arousal and fear. (laughs) Like, they're right next to each other in our brain. And so that's why on dates, um, people who go out to a scary movie can then attribute, oh, I'm feeling this way, not because the movie's actually scary, because logically we know it's just a movie, but because of this person I'm sitting next to, right? So, yeah, so can I, can I say yeah. something? Yeah. So this is why when I'm PMSing that I blame Jeff for everything that I see around me that yeah. looks like it's a little off. <laughs> yeah, right, because uh, that's actually the next step because it's uncomfortable to blame ourselves because we have to live with ourselves all the time. So that's getting into one type of attribution called the fundamental attribution error. And that's <clears throat> when I do something crappy, it's because of the situation. When I do something good, it's because I'm a good person. When you do something good, it's because of the situation. When you do something crappy, it's because you're a crappy person. Right. And so we have this way of doing this individually. So like when I get cut off when I'm driving, I'm like, that person's an idiot and they probably never learned how to drive. And like all of the mean stereotypical things I think about pop up. Right. But when I cut someone off and I get the horn slammed on me, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I totally didn't see you. That was all oh my God. Right. So we do that not only. <clears throat> individually. But then when you start talking about how we developed as social animals, we do that tribally as well. And when we do it tribally, that becomes like an in-group, out-group situation. So people in my group are did a crappy thing because of the situation, not because they're crappy people, right? So like the Proud Boys stormed the Capitol because justice needed to be served, not because they were a-holes that didn't like the outcome of the election, right? And so we, we become in out-group in that way. Well, we've learned that in-groups and out-groups can be created with nothing, right? Usually we go by looks or lifestyle or religion or gender, but even something like 
you are in uh, Camp Eagle and you are in Camp Beaver. And you two are the two camps and you're playing capture the flag all summer long. You'll find that those who are in the group Eagles start to demean Camp Beaver, right? Like they're crappy people. We're going to get them situationally. And we've seen this in experiments with boys at a Boy Scout camp. And as soon as you remove someone and put them in the other camp, they very quickly then flip their identification, right? Um, Maybe you've heard of the famous study of the blue-eyed, brown-eyed done in, um, I think it was a first grade class where one day the teacher said everybody with blue eyes is better and she responded to them nicer and <clears throat> and the people with brown eyes kind of felt bad about themselves and, and interpreted that. And then the next day when she flipped it and people with blue eyes weren't the favored group, people recognized that very quickly in her responses without even having a verbal kind of identification. So at a very... Um, evolutionary level, social animal level, we are wired to preserve our own self-esteem, our own ego, if you will, by saying, when I do something crappy, it's because of the crappy situation, right? We're also driven to be in tribes. And so we always are looking for our group, right? I remember when I was traveling through Europe, which, you know, is very white, very looking like me, as soon as I saw or heard other Americans, I felt comfortable, right? And they identified me because I took a Mr. Potato Head to take pictures, right? Um, And and they saw that people would come over to me and we would group because we were Americans, right, in a foreign country. If you were to have me walk out on the street now and somebody's like, I'm an American, I'm like, stay away, (laughs) Right. And so it's a very interesting um, situational context. And it's the culture that you're in. We naturally want to identify with a group. So that kind of makes sense from like what emotional attribution is and that we need to cognitively tie it. And that that next level is protecting ourselves through attribution and then protecting our group. So. There's a way then in which it was adaptive for us. This is where I'm going to kind of the jump to, to, to protect the creeper youth pastor. Like there's like, there, there's somehow this, this helped us. Now this is a misfiring of it now. Okay. So that's, that makes sense. Now I'm going to ask an existential question. It's not you as a psychologist, psychology professor. Uh, this is just kind of like, what do we do about this? For my own defense, I want to say, I still want to say sometimes that person is so sick, they need to be quarantined. And so as a shorthand, I would say that cat's bad news. That, that, that person's not trustworthy. Um, and I guess I can't like have a moral element to it, but has anybody discussed any tools for working through this problem? Right? Like, so, okay. Th- I understand so now I can understand the circumstances why people are looking to the situation, the circumstances for some uh, sexual predator. And I can understand how like I am in my archaic way trying to assign some kind of divine or satanic aspect to it when it's in fact just all this other stuff or maybe more, you know, uh, but is there any, any way to counteract this? 
Sure. So there's uh, a lot of things that can be done um, and that are actually happening, which is why we're hearing about it. So the, the first thing is understanding how conformity works, which is really, from my experience, taught in all religions, but particularly Christianity. And this is coming from a religious Switzerland of, you know, a, a Muslim sister for a period of time and a Jewish mom and a Methodist dad and working with Lutherans, right? There is definitely a pressure from the beginning to kind of conform and to kind of obey. And so when you have those two things in conjunction, conformity and obeying, then it takes a lot for um, something that is wrong to be brought up, even by victims of abuse. So again, a corollary is that people in the gay and lesbian community, um, which I do research with, are very hesitant to talk about domestic violence in the gay and lesbian community because they already feel social pressure to be kind of um, a model minority, if you will, and to have it together. And as soon as I'm free to come out, everything is fine. My problems go away. And so they are very unlikely to report domestic violence. They become protective of their very abusers, right? A great uh, thing that's happening right now or a great story um, that we can see in current times is Megan Thee Stallion. I don't know if you've heard that she's now starting to talk about the experience of being shot at and shot by a friend like a couple of years ago. Um, she was leaving a party. There was this person just got really agitated, pulled out a gun, started shooting at her feet and say, you know, dance, you know, expletive. Oh, and, and she actually was shot in at least one, if not two of her feet. I don't, I don't remember which. The police were called. And they showed up and she said that she wasn't shot, that it was just an accident that like she fell or something, she stepped on something. And later she's just now starting to talk about the reason why is that she was more afraid of the police yeah. shooting her and these people in an event and in a situation that she protect her, protected her abuser or her assaulter. Right. And we see this a lot with black women, that they feel protective of the community more than feeling protection for their own selves. Wow. Yeah. And, and we we internalize abuse. Right. So what can we do about it? Well, we need to to break conformity. And the way that we learn in psychology to break conformity is to have just one person call it out. So there's a great uh, classic psych study. Uh, it's Ash's line study where people come in and there's three lines and then a sample line and they go around the room and say, you know, which line matches the sample line. And it's not a hard test. It's pretty obvious what the answers are. But as people go around the room, they're, they're Confederates. They're paid to lie to kind of set up the situation. And so they all start saying the wrong line, but they all start saying the same wrong line, right? So like, let's say the answer is B and they all go around the room and they're like, A, 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 A is the line, right? And when you get to that last person, they've heard 
everybody else say this? And so now they're questioning, A, am I wrong? Did I see this wrong? Am I being gaslighted in today's vernacular, right? Or do I care enough to disrupt the community to disagree? Is it important enough to do that, right? So there's some barriers. If you think about it in a religious setting, to have somebody say, am I willing, am I wrong? Maybe this didn't happen. Maybe this wasn't inappropriate touching. Just because I felt weird doesn't mean everybody else would. So there's this questioning. And then there's this aspect of, you know, do I want to disrupt the community? Do I want to disrupt my family? Do I want to kind of create this upheaval. And you can see this happening with the Duggar family, the family of 19, where one of their uh, their oldest son, I think, has now just been convicted of uh, child porn and has previously sexually assaulted his own sisters and other people in the community. And you don't see, you, you hear about the one sister who's like, yeah, he needs to go to jail, people. Hello. And everybody else is just quiet about it in the face of this evidence because it's that disruption sorry Sydney go ahead but uh, I'm just saying his wife like fully supports him too and like denies anything doing right so when you put on this whole conformity and obedience and disruption of the community and protecting the tribe and then we add on top of it the fact that most of the victims are young and especially females, we have a society where it is okay to lust after minor children, minor girls, right? Like throughout history, I mean, Elvis married Priscilla when she was 16, I think, right? And that was okay. Um, American Beauty, a big movie when, you know, and our formative uh, years was all about a middle-aged guy lusting after a high school girl. And nobody looked at that and said, ew, right? Like Phoebe Cates coming out of a pool in a bikini in the eighties and having all these old guys commenting on it was okay. It was accepted. So you add on this, we have, we still have not overcome the sexualization of specifically young teen girls who then feel like they might be wrong that they got this attention or maybe they like the attention because they're getting attention and we've been conditioned to take that as a positive attention. And then when they realize older that they've been victimized, it's really difficult to decide that they're going to disrupt the community. But as soon as someone does, have you noticed Anytime in this hashtag me too, as soon as one person says it, they all come out. And that's what we learned about conformity. If one of those people in the row said, I disagree with everybody else, the line is B. The last person is more likely to then say what they honestly feel rather than conform. Yeah, Stacy. And then I've I've, you know, I've heard some people sort of refer to that. And in that phenomenon where people all do come forward and they're like, oh, well, they all, they're making this up. And now it's, they're like all imagining, you hysteria. know, this, yeah, it's like a hysteria kind of thing or whatever. Yeah. Um, and it's just so unfortunate that it's almost as if talking about abuse then will make people 
think they were abused and all <clears throat> come forward. Right. And, and we can see how much we're really, we really need to paint the victim, specifically the woman, if it's the female victim, as bad or as tempting, which is already underscored in religion. So like, look at how Amber Heard has been treated throughout the domestic violence defamation case with uh, Johnny Depp. There was, she had no chance. And she's like, I came forward because I had evidence. And if I can come forward with evidence and you can still discount me because I have a mental health diagnosis, then why do you expect anybody else to come forward? Why do you think anybody else will stop? And so the thing that we need to do is first educate to recognize what abuse actually is and how uh, ingrained it is in so many of our institutions. So there's an educational piece. But then there's also the, it just takes one voice to break conformity. And even if it's the annoying person, it allows space for other people to come forward. And that's true in any group. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I'm not saying that we did this. I mean, there's a little bit of that uh, corroboration of this in our own lives. We recently did, you know, did a show basically saying, hey, sorry, friends, we think you should unplug Christian higher ed. It's it's a disaster. Uh, But I feel bad, you know, like I feel bad about that. Like I want you to do well. Um, Not saying it to close the actual doors, but you got to sever from the the structure. But um, then I would get texts and people would say, hey, this is colleagues. Uh, I want to talk to you. I want to talk to you on the phone. And I would just get sick to my stomach. And like, I just couldn't. I'm like, oh, gosh, there's these sweet people that are going to feel like I let them down. You know, like I don't like I don't believe what they believe. And now they're just they're just this. And time and time again, people said you vocalized something I was uncomfortable about. Even people that were like politically, religiously more conservative. Um, And I think that's why we keep doing it. It's like we don't. uh, There's so many people that came forward to say thank you with phone calls. I was thinking I was going to get shot upon. Yeah. I'm sure the people are in their hearts. (laughs) But there are some people that, you know, obviously probably just went away. (laughs) I'm not saying everybody received it well, but I I will say that um, putting that out there, um, Again, we were able to vocalize what they were already thinking, and they right. they thanked us for that. Sometimes, and and that's that's the trouble, and that's the difficulty with overcoming any institutionalized oppression of a group. So, like, um, I always felt like a complete asshole when I was talking about institutional racism in prisons and how it's tilted against Black and Hispanic students and Latino students. And I was at Trinity and like three quarters of my students were black, Latino. And I'm like, okay, can we just point out like, hello, irony, but I need to talk about it because there's that one white kid in the class that needs to, to still hear it. And it also opens up the floor a little bit for those who don't feel the power yet to, to take some of it. And, and the nice thing about me being an empowered, entitled white person, so I'm not that scared. <laughs> right. Right. And so like, I think about when we were at Trinity and how I was, um, one of the first really vocal pro gay pro anything 
kind of person. And I took a lot of hits professionally. Um, yeah. Right. Um, but it was worth it because students started coming out. Yeah. And our suicide rates dropped. So was it hard for me to torch my career for nine years? Yeah. <laughs> you saw it. It was bad. Yeah, right. It's fine. No. Was it worth it in the long run? Absolutely to me. And so that's why, you know, you need to take that time to recharge and you need to take that time to remember why you're in the fight because it gets really easy to be exhausted being the one voice speaking, right? Breaking that, that um, compliance or conformity, but it's necessary because then it gives space to other people. And that's why I like, I've actually not, this is my free mom hug shirt that I'm wearing today. <laughs> right? And I decided like I'm at graduation, I had my uh, hood all pinned up with like, I'm vaccinated. I'm a mom for abortion, you know, like super yes. political. Cause at this point, even if it's a symbol, I need my student to see the, the she, her button that I bought myself so I can say, Hey, I see you. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And that makes that space. So so how do we get through it? We keep bringing it up. We keep being that voice. We keep making space for those who have been victimized, who have been disempowered to get a chance, a bubble to not be the first voice, which is scary. But maybe they can be the second or the third. And And to me the way that I just can keep going on an existential level is that I got to go one student at a time, one person at a time, and maybe they'll touch another life or two and maybe that, that will ripple out, but, but it's hard and it's scary. And when I started my own personal advocacy in uh, LGBTQ issues, it wasn't a matter of life or death, but now Black Lives Matter, if I go out and protest, I could die. And like the, the well, stakes have gotten well, higher. It, so it's scary. <clears throat> it really is because, and also, uh, and, and that's maybe one last thing I'd like to reflect on from, from the perspective of professional psychology is, um, you know, um, well, let me think about it from social history for a second. Maybe reflecting recently on the idea that precisely because in the 60s there was this change of consciousness people experimenting in, in at harvard with the uh, uh, psychedelics in in the psychology and psychology um and people got so close to completely upending their paradigms about things the war and the economy and all this that they freaked out they just freaked out and then went hard the other direction and we're still kind of dealing with this that there's like the kids are waking up so even as Dr. Little is, is, is opening kids' minds from these very beautiful but very parochial upbringings, and then they wake up, but then Grandpa and Uncle Bill or whatever, they're seeing the kids are getting out of hand, and now they're all lining up in Coeur d'Alene, going to try to confront, like, pride events. And so, like, yep. I mean, I, I don't... You know, it's like a different time in some ways, in a good way. But then there's also some very, very violent threats. Like even going this Sunday, we're gonna you know, go go to the Pride event in downtown Portland. Like, I don't know. There, the, the the thing about Portland that's weird is that Portland is this little island of of zany in a great way. 
but it's surrounded by some like dudes with uh, Confederate flags. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's like it's it's really healing for us, but also terrifying because yeah. we're all like kind of huddled in this thing. You, with yeah, orcs you don't want to go too far out of Portland, you know, and then you have to then you kind of almost, you know, if you forget that and you do go outside, like we've, you know, we've gone over to Washington to do some hikes and stuff. And all of a sudden we're eating and we're like, oh, yeah, we're not in Portland anymore, you know. And you could just tell from the other clientele, you know, you can tell from anyway, the just way they anybody, come yeah, yeah, <laughs> how they drive, how they yep. respond to us, you know. And we've almost had people run us off the road lately. I mean, it's just been really de- so okay. So that's that. So the stakes are higher, and so we need to remember to be able to combat the abuse. We need to conserve our energy. We need to do a lot of self-care so we can really fight hard because the stakes are higher on, on all sides. And as Jeff said, precisely because people are going to be showing up with guns, we need to be there, you know. But also, but you're that point to like kind of like, okay, keep it cool. Yeah. Right. Cool. It's that oh, and that's it. Our neighbors also, they um they had attended training for de-escalation. And that is something that we want to do ourselves because you want to be helpful and you want to be a participant, but also being able to be a de-escalator. Yeah is far more helpful in a lot of these kind of situations if we keep putting ourselves out there, you know. Until yeah. we moved to Portland, we never met so many people. They're just like walking down the street, our neighbors that have been trained in, you know, like how to do like Medicare, like medical uh, care for people, people who have just been like beaten by cops. You know, it's an interesting, it's yeah. an interesting scene. But I guess my last question though, from like, from maybe you could shed some light on it. It's like in history, like one of the stupidest questions, but the one of the only interesting, important questions about Western history since the Middle Ages is why does everybody hate the Jews? When you start answering the question and it's like, ah, I shouldn't maybe even talk about this, but it's an important question, right? Because once you understand that, you understand so much of the other sicknesses. Um, why the heck, why the heck, do, like, why does everybody get on the cases of the queers? Like what, what's the, what's, What's going on about us as yeah. freaking homo sapiens that get yeah. so up? Yeah. So again, it's it's very social animal evolutionary psychology kind of thing. Um, we first of all, it's easy to pick on queer individuals, right? Because they um, aren't really known for fighting back. <laughs> very passive, right? So that's that's part of it. It's also easy, though, because it's an issue of sexuality and more specifically, masculinity. Yeah. Right? There is a natural reaction that, that the hate that they're feeling is actually kind of a reflection of their own um, uh, feelings of emas- yeah insecurities right like they already feel emasculated you know i mean <clears throat> not to sing the sad song of the plight of the white hetero guy right but it is a hard time when you have always been in power yeah if you suddenly see women who are like i don't need you yeah. <laughs> be yeah. valuable in a different way <clears throat> and we see people of, of different religions and different cultures and things we don't understand. Like living in San Diego, we walk down the street and we hear Spanish speaking all the time. And I always have this moment of like, God, I wish I knew what they were talking about. I just want to know, like, I just, right. And there's this like feeling on the outside. Well, it'd be really easy for me to then turn that to anger towards them. Well, why don't they learn English? 
they're in America. That's my country. Right. And so it's, it's that, that insecurity that the majority has had as they're watching it slip away. And the question is, can you adapt? So far, the answer is no. Generally speaking. Right. (laughs) But also like what we're seeing is kind of um, what I refer to as an extinction burst. So this goes to behavioral like conditioning So if you go to a vending machine and you put your money in and you push the button and you're used to the soda coming out, right? And then you go to the vending machine, you put your money in, you push the button, the soda doesn't come out. What do you do? Push the button some more, right? And what we learn is rats and people and everybody will continue to push that button, right? Like I think of it as the elevator button. I'm like, God damn it, right? Like understand urgency. That's what the white majority the white Christian, Republican, hyper-masculine, America MAGA group, that's where they're at right now. They're pushing the buttons that have <laughs> always they're worked. They're pushing lobby, 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 and they're stuck on right. floor three. But yeah. now I can't get a wife. So it's I'm an incel, and it's because these women are terrible, yeah. and I'm going to shoot them now because I'm angry because I can't right. get laid. By, not by my choice, right? That, this, that's this machine's Right. And so we're seeing this extinction burst where it's getting more and more and more and more violent. And what I hypothesize is that we'll get through the extinction burst as long as we don't give them the soda at any point in time. They have to stop <laughs> getting. Right. Does that make sense? Like yeah, feed a cold not, starve of flu. I like this. Yeah. If it if it if we give in just like a a temper tantrum with a child, yeah. they're going to learn this is what I have to do to get recognition. And we see this with school shootings, right? Like these are the numbers of people I have to kill to get noticed, yeah. right? And it keeps escalating. Well, if we give them the treat, if we give them the soda at any point in time, then they've learned this is how far I have to go. And when that doesn't work, they'll push further. So we just got to look at them and let them run it out. And, and it's hard because they're scary and they're dangerous. And sometimes stand in the way of the kiddos who might be in their blast radius. But instead of, I think what I'm hearing from you is a very Dow kind of thing. And that is, um, we're, you're not going to go, although I do appreciate the stickers around town that says punch a, you know, punch a fascist on Fridays, you know, punch a fast. I, I like this sort of thing or uh, Portland queers bash back. I mean, these are fun. Yeah. But um, but I think ultimately what I'm hearing is, yeah, like we protect ourselves, create the boundaries, but um, let them have their tantrum in the room. I'll take it for a while, as long as they keep their AKs out of my face for a little while. Exactly. And that's the thing is, is that we need to, to kind of find a way that we're individually comfortable with for our own safety and our own well-being. And it's important to recognize that because I don't think people understand that that is a real fear. Like I'm not going to go to a black lives matter protest till my kid is older. <laughs> right. Like I just, I'm not going to well, do spi- that. I mean, yeah. Right. The, I mean, in those moments, you're, it's spicy. Your your parent, it is kind of like in Hinduism, they talk about the, what's called the householder yogi where it's, it's real cute for you to be uh, meditating on a mountain for three, three months straight, but you know, your kids need, you know, something to eat. <laughs> you know, so it's exactly. like <laughs> and, and that's and why we, and that's why we see it's the younger generation that's really 
supporting and holding the longevity. Um, things like uh, the group that's from Parkland. I don't know if you guys heard that they just did another like uh, anti-gun rally that brought a lot of people to Washington. And it's a group that were at a high school shooting that were victims of it. And they're like, look, this was five years ago and we're going to keep being loud because you keep not doing anything. And so that's the group that isn't, isn't afraid or is afraid, but afraid of what will happen if they don't stand up. Right. Well, I hate banking it all on the babies, but I guess that's all we can do at this point in the case. <laughs> like, have, come on, for you. I do. I have hope. I really like as, Thank goodness that I teach at a community college level because I get to see them every day coming in, showing up, caring, you know, taking care of each other in ways that has been missing for a while. Mm. Um, and so I feel a lot of hope with that. To be honest, the um, January 6th committee hearings gives me hope, right? That, yeah. that at least at least we can track it and we can acknowledge it and we can see it as opposed to just sweeping something under the rug. So yeah. it's, it's moving, but there's a, there's a lot of things that kind of override our, our more cognitive selves and really brings us back to our more animal selves. And fear is going to be the thing that does it, which is why fear mongering works. Thank you so much, Betsy, because this brings it around full circle. And, uh, you know, with the January 6th hearings, we're saying it's that same kind of thing. Even just asking the question, are we okay with this? Are we okay with people going to hang the vice president? Like, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of Pence. He's talking about running in 2024. I'm glad it's him, not somebody else, maybe. I ain't voting for him. But being able to point at this and say, is this, uh, is this okay? That helps. Right. And I think that's another thing too, Betsy, I want to say on behalf of uh, our crew here, thank you so much because uh, with, without meeting you 10, 12, God, how long, you know, 14 years ago, mm -hmm. um, you had no business being at a Bible college in Seattle. Okay. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know what the hell happened there, but it was, you had every business in the world, right? You were like a little like, I don't know, like yes. a little Betsy, but you know what I'm saying? It was like a, a like a, like a beachhead in a, in a, an odd thing. And I'm not even saying anything negative about Trinity. I just, just had, you know, a couple of nice lunches with some friends from Trinity. I'm saying that scene that was not your scene and you entered into the scene and you immediately were not loved by the scene. <laughs> you were a threat to the scene. And you stuck with it. And you at least stuck with it. And you're patient with us, you know, and so that like you being able to just kind of show us some information, you brought the social sciences into a, uh, into that world. And you were one of my main teachers. Yeah. It's been very helpful. So thank you. Thank you you're so welcome. Much. Yeah. I mean, it's tough when like at Trinity, I really felt like I would jump in front of the bullets heading towards like the students or particular groups. And it's exhausting. And you guys do the same thing every time. And it's very important. Um, and there are as many people as you've heard from that you have touched and helped. There are, I assure you, two to three times more that never said it, that couldn't say it, that did also benefit, that did get touched in a good way. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I hope, I'm sure that's so, and that's true for most most of us when we uh, 
to look back at the things we've done in in uh, in good faith. Much love to you. We'll stay in touch. Yeah, absolutely. Good to see you and all. Let that baby of yours be the future. I, I uh, that yes. and the, the puppy here. Yeah. <laughs> all right. I'll tell you, if she's the future, we're okay. She told me the other day, <laughs> and I was like, "Hey, you're a first grader now." She's like, "Mom, we both knew this day would come." <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. Thank you so much, friends, for joining us for this episode of the Protect Your Noggin podcast. You want to join in on the conversation? We'd love to respond to your questions or comments on a future show. You can record a message by going to protectyournoggin.org and clicking on the blue voice message button. And don't worry about getting it perfect since you'll have five minutes and a chance to preview your message before sending. You can also send an email if you're not comfortable with leaving a voice message. Please also follow us on Twitter at the PYNP. And rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you found this show of any help, uh, why not share it with a friend? Until next time, peace upon peace, friends. But he said there wasn't any letter. He said I was going out of my mind. Not going out of your mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. Why? Why? Perhaps because you found this letter no too much.